gathered today know that now is not the time to celebrate granted most of our fantasy teams are 2-0 and many of those early round running backs have fallen and our running backs Melvin Gordon Jarek McKinnon Tevin Coleman Charles Sims are rising we are winning, but we have also lost. Last Sunday, we lost the best of us. The best there's ever been. He was an undersized running back. No one thought much of him. <laughs> Told myself I wouldn't do this. He only had one dream play football at the University of Nebraska, devoted the first part of his life to achieving that goal. And he failed. He failed. He didn't make it. They looked at him and they said, no, you're not a Division I college running back. So he said, okay, I accept that assessment, but I will continue doing what I love, playing football <laughs> at Chadron State. And then a funny thing happened. He did really well. He did so well. He completely dominated every other football player on the football field at his level of competition, even though he was still the smallest person on the field. Always the smallest person on the field didn't matter because he had the talent and he had the will you put those two things together the ability and the will and a man standing five foot eight 160 pounds can dominate so after dominating at Chadron State he got a call from of all places the University of Nebraska <laughs> And they said, we're having a pro day. Would you like to participate? And he said, yes, I would love to participate. Thank you. He wasn't embittered. He was appreciative. <laughs> and at that pro day, he ran a sub 4440 and posted a 125.1 1 
80th percentile burst score on playerprofiler.com. <laughs> but was that enough to be drafted? No. Did that stop him? No! <laughs> At this point, he was emboldened. He knew every time he stepped on the football field, he was the best player on the field. Always. If that was your reality, would you give up if you were undrafted? He didn't. He scheduled tryouts, he joined practice squads, he scheduled more tryouts, he joined more practice squads until he was finally signed to an NFL roster. And what did he do? He succeeded. <laughs> and he became the running back we're always looking for. Available in the later rounds. Available in the waiver wire. <laughs> Electric in space. A phenomenal pass catcher. He embodied everything that you look for in a zero RB back. <laughs> and what did fantasy footballers do? They dismissed him. He was never a first round pick. Ever. Ever. That's right. He was never a second-round pick. He was never a third-round pick during his entire NFL career. All this man did was produce PPR fantasy points. You know he did! You know he did! And no one appreciated him while he was here. While he was with us. And now he's gone! He's gone! He's gone! And I don't know if he's coming back. And it breaks my heart. <laughs> he was a top 12 running back in 2013. And then what was to be a surefire RB1 in fantasy season in 2014 was ripped away from him. <laughs> Did he complain? No, he attacked his rehab with a vigor. As has always been his way. His way. Never. Always his way. Not listening to anyone else. Because at every level of competition, he was a success. <laughs> he was one of the best. Last year, 15.3 fantasy points per game. That was number six in the NFL. And yet, he was being drafted outside the top 60 players on MyFantasyLeague.com <laughs> in 2016. And that's on you, and you, and you, and you, and you. You can't get those draft picks back. That's right! Because whether he's here with us or not, you should have drafted him over Carlos Hyde, and you know it! And he was doing so well <laughs> and he was making all of us regret not drafting him through one week of the season 23 fantasy points against kansas city 
on track for another huge performance against Jacksonville. <laughs> and then he was gone! <laughs> he was gone! He was here! He was here! The quintessential zero RB running back was here, producing for us! And now he's gone! He's gone! He's gone! <laughs> Original Zero RBG Danny Woodhead. I'm going to miss you, Danny. I'm going to miss you. It all started with Danny Woodhead, and now he's gone. But his legacy is Zero RB. And as we saw in week two, everything is clicking into place for those of us that followed zero RB strategy. Giovanni Bernard, 24 points, yeah! Melvin Gordon is the bell cow in San Diego moving forward. Get out of here with your Dexter McCluster talk. The idea that Dexter McCluster could fill Danny Woodhead's shoes. It's an absurd hypothesis that tarnishes the memory of Danny Woodhead. Charles Sims will be the workhorse in Tampa Bay for at least the next three weeks. Tevin Coleman continues to outscore Devontae Freeman in all formats, and Jarek McKinnon is happening. But this is not a time to celebrate because we lost the zero RB running back that year in, year out, returned the most value on his ADP, Danny Woodhead. There's no one else like him in the NFL, and he will be missed. But fantasy gamers have already moved on from Danny Woodhead. They're already talking about Dwayne Washington. That's right, Dwayne Washington. He's the new guy. He's the new it waiver wire player. Dwayne Washington. That's right. Dwayne Washington is absolutely an interesting player. He looks a lot like Javorius Allen. Six foot 223, 105.9 speed score. 77th percentile, 127.3 burst score, 87th percentile, and an 1107 agility score, 79th percentile. His workout metrics were well above average across the board. That is an intriguing player. But just because I'm intrigued doesn't mean I'm overly excited because Dwayne Washington wasn't the starter at Washington. And even though the running back with the most apropos last name for the Washington Huskies in Husky history, even a 123.076 percentile Spark X score on playerprofiler.com and even the last name Washington wasn't enough for Dwayne Washington to become the starter in Washington. That's why he posted a mere 22.2% college dominator rating. That's 32nd percentile. And you say, well, what about college target share? Even Fozzie Whitaker posted an upper percentile college target share at Texas without a great college dominator working in his favor. Well, Dwayne Washington's target share was 7.6%. That's average. He is a good receiver out of the backfield. That's why his best comparable on playerprofiler.com is Javorius Allen. But like Javorius Allen, Dwayne Washington was never the favorite of the coaching staff. The USC coaches constantly wanted Trey Madden 
to supplant Javorius Allen. And the Washington coaches were not in a hurry to install Dwayne Washington as their number one running back at the college level. So Dwayne Washington has terrific size-adjusted athleticism, but it takes more than size-adjusted athleticism to succeed in the NFL. How many years did Kristen Michael languish in Seattle with great size-adjusted athleticism? But now we're hearing the metrics people chirping. Oh, yes. When a spot opens up for an athletic specimen on the depth chart, that's when you know the analytics people will start chirping. And oh, do they love to chirp about Dwayne Washington and say ridiculous things like, all that matters for running backs is athleticism and Dwayne Washington oozes athleticism. He has more upside than Theo Riddick. <laughs> what? These are the same people that were touting Zach Zenner's athletic profile last year. Zach Zenner's still on the team. Make up your mind. Do you still love Zach Zenner? Or have you had a change of heart and now you love Dwayne Washington? The difference between Zach Zenner and Dwayne Washington is Zach Zenner was hugely productive at the college level, but Dwayne Washington can play on special teams. That's why Dwayne Washington was active last Sunday and Zach Zenner was not. You saw Dwayne Washington in the game last week and not Zach Zenner for the same reason you saw Fozzie Whitaker getting carries in the second half and not Cameron Artis Payne last week. But Jonathan Stewart is out for week three. Amir Abdullah is on the IR. That means Zach Zenner and Cameron Artis Payne will be activated and they will be your short yardage backs. And Zach Zenner and Cameron Artis Payne are their teams respective between the tackles runners and short yardage backs. It's not Fozzie Whitaker and it's not Dwayne Washington. Unlike the Panthers, the Lions also have one of the league's best satellite backs in Theo Riddick. And beyond his sublime play in the passing game, Theo Riddick has also been awarded carries this year. Theo Riddick has nine carries per game. That's in stark contrast to Riddick's 2.7 carries per game last year. And what has Riddick been doing with these carries? 4.6 yards per carry. When you combine Theo Riddick's efficiency in the running game and the passing game, plus 60.6 production premium, number three in the league. The big winner from Sunday's running back massacre, Melvin Gordon, Theo Riddick, Charles Sims, Jarek McKinnon. And Theo Riddick was one of the biggest winners because his opportunity share, which was already 50% with Amir Abdullah healthy, will rise. Detroit was leading Tennessee the entire game in week two until the very end. And still they were feeding Theo Riddick. Why? Because Theo Riddick has been developing an all-around game. But you can't tell this to the analytics hipsters. No, 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 no. Because I'm hearing Theo Riddick is a bad runner of the football and that Dwayne Washington projects to lead the team in opportunity share, not Theo Riddick. It's just, it's, what? The question is not who's a better fantasy asset, Theo Riddick or Dwayne Washington. The question is who's a better fantasy asset, Dwayne Washington or Zach Zenner? And I'm not sure. I don't know exactly how the Lions are going to use Dwayne Washington and Zach Zenner. We're going to see how the touch distribution shakes out this Sunday. And between now and then, and for the rest of the season, I can tell you with certainty, the back to own in Detroit is not Dwayne Washington. <laughs> 
despite what some misguided metrics people believe, it's absolutely theoretic and it's not particularly close. And the reason I'm not sure whether Dwayne Washington will receive more carries than Zach Zenner is because production does matter for running backs. But again, the analytics people at Rotoviz and other places will tell you, no, 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 no. All that matters for running backs is size-adjusted athleticism, and all that matters for wide receivers is age-adjusted production. That's it. But that's not true. This is why so many sports fans object to the things analytics people say. One of the reasons why it's taking so long for analytics to enter the sports lexicon is because analytics people are just as likely to use their data inconsistently to fit some ridiculous narrative as the anecdotal regurgitators are to misuse their information. And the analytics people like to wrap their sports opinions in a condescending tone. So if you're a sports fan and you have to choose what information am I going to consume, the confirmation bias soaked wrapped in condescension over here, or the confirmation bias soaked anecdotal information over there, you could see why there's a dilemma. You could see why the adoption of analytics and metrics in football conversations has been so slow. Because of course production matters. Look at the top running backs in the NFL. What do they all have in common? Almost all of them were huge college producers. Because every time you take a rep on a football field, that is an opportunity to demonstrate your ability. And if your resume shows a lack of productivity at lower levels of competition, of course that is indicative of your ability to produce at higher levels of competition. This is just intuitive. This is all I do on this show is sit behind this microphone and say things that couldn't be more obvious. And yet I am flying into a headwind of metrics and analytics people saying college production for running backs doesn't matter. All that matters is athleticism. And when analyzing wide receivers, the same principle applies. It's just not plausible that athleticism wouldn't matter for wide receivers. Of course, athleticism matters in athletics. Of course it does. Age-adjusted college production and size-adjusted athleticism both matter when evaluating running backs and receivers. It's just a matter of degrees. My only goal is to have a nuanced conversation to get to the truth. It's not to run out to the extremes to microwave some ridiculous sports take that's obviously false to anyone with common sense. Yes, it is true that with running backs, size-adjusted athleticism is more predictive than college production. And the inverse is true for wide receivers. Age-adjusted production is more predictive than size-adjusted athleticism. But all those data points matter. It's just by orders of magnitude. Of course, it's a red flag that Dwayne Washington's college dominator is 22.2, and he's now competing for between the tackles touches with Zach Zenner, whose college dominator was 43.8%, 92nd percentile. I don't know who will receive more carries, Dwayne Washington or Zach Zenner. The other problem is that Zach Zenner is a better athlete than Dwayne Washington. Zach Zenner, a 134.5, 95th percentile Spark X score. 
that's over 10 points higher than Dwayne Washington. So I don't know who will play this ancillary between the tackles short yardage back roll for the Lions. That's why I'm not running out and spending 60% of my free agent auction budget on Dwayne Washington based on the analysis of a caricature of a metrics person running out to the extremes, speaking only in absolutes, so they can be the first person on social media to tout Dwayne Washington. No, I'm not going to do it. I'd rather have Zach Zenner for 1% of my free agent auction budget than Dwayne Washington for 50% of my free agent auction budget. You're certainly not picking up Dwayne Washington over Jarek McKinnon. And you're certainly not picking up Matt Asiata over Jarek McKinnon. But all I keep hearing is, don't forget about Matt Asiata. Quote, coaches value consistency, end quote. Quote, coaches trust Asiata in pass pro, end quote. Never mind that film analysts like Peter Davidson have come on this show and said that Jarek McKinnon is one of the best pass protectors in the league now. Never mind that. We have these old narratives that we have to copy and paste from 2014. That's the move when Adrian Peterson goes down because the last time Adrian Peterson went down was 2014. And you can't expect us to use our brains. That's too much to ask, right? So what if it's 2016? We need to act as if it's 2014 that makes our jobs easy. Matt Asiata's going to get the goal line work. Matt Asiata's going to get the third down work. Matt Asiata's going to be in in the two-minute drill. All the high-leverage fantasy point scoring opportunities will go to Matt Asiata. Really? Because multiple trusted beat reporters that follow the Minnesota Vikings have said that they expect... A 65-35 touch distribution with Jarek McKinnon receiving the lion's share of the touches in Minnesota. That's what the beat reporters are saying. But that conflicts with our 2014 narrative. So this is the time? This is the time? This is the time that the generic fantasy analysts are not going to simply quote the beat reporter as if that's gospel. This is the time when we shouldn't listen to the beat reporters. And we should listen to the fantasy analysts instead. Right, 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 of course. Yeah, makes sense. Because Matt Asiata getting the goal line work, the third down work, and the two-minute drill work doesn't add up to 35% of the touches. Doesn't. Not even close. So get out of here with that. I believe that Jarek McKinnon will be a more explosive Giovanni Bernard and that Matt Asiata is a more lumbering Jeremy Hill. But Giovanni Bernard is already a terrific PPR back. And Jarek McKinnon is more athletic, more explosive than Giovanni Bernard. And that's a bad thing. When was the last time you heard any fantasy analyst say Giovanni Bernard needs to be worried about Jeremy Hill? I can answer that. You haven't. Not at all. But for some reason, Jarek McKinnon enthusiasts need to be worried about Matt Asiata. It doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? And no, I don't think Matt Asiata will be the Minnesota Vikings third down back. Have you seen Matt Asiata? Does he look anything like the prototypical NFL third down back? No. He's 5'11", 234, and runs a 4'8", 140. Matt Asiata 
is not a satellite back. Matt Asiata is not electric in space. The Vikings would be doing their team a disservice if they deployed Matt Asiata in passing down situations. And I think the Minnesota Vikings coaches know this. I don't give coaches a lot of credit for many things, but I'm going to give the Minnesota Vikings credit for knowing that playing Jarek McKinnon in passing situations improves the Vikings' chances of scoring touchdowns than playing Matt Asiata. I, when one of these big-name running backs goes down, that's when you see the worst possible fantasy football analysis. You see analysts start to trot out the pass-blocking fallacy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You must be a good pass-blocker in the NFL in order to be trusted in high-leverage situations. Well, number one, Jarek McKinnon is a very capable pass-blocker. And number two, backs do not have to be great pass-blockers in order to play in passing situations. We just finished talking about Theo Riddick. He's not great in pass-protection because they never ask him to block because they don't need to. A running back needs to either be a good pass catcher, a good receiver, or a good blocker. If you want to play on third downs, a running back has to either be a good receiver or a good blocker. They never have to be both, and very few running backs are both. There aren't many Matt Fortes in the NFL. Matt Forte, by the way, one of the most productive college running backs of all time, a 100th percentile college dominator at Tulane. Just another example of why college production matters. <laughs> I just can't believe I have to say that out loud. <laughs> the most obvious thing that's ever tumbled from my lips in the history of Roto Underworld Radio. Matt Forte being productive at Tulane mattered. <laughs> Duh! <laughs> the next time one of these metric zombies wants to talk to you in absolutes, all that matters for running backs is athleticism. Have them go to playerprofiler.com and look up a running back named Michael Ford. Michael Ford, 130.9, 90th percentile Spark X score, 11% college dominator, 5th percentile. An incredible athlete who is a non-producer at the college level. His best comparable player, unsurprisingly, Kristen Michael. What did Michael Ford do in the NFL? Spoiler alert, nothing. Why? Because he didn't do anything at LSU. And that 130.5 91st percentile burst score didn't improve his instincts as a running back at the next level. But unlike Michael Ford, Jarek McKinnon does have tremendous football instincts. He is a great pass blocker. He does run great routes. He does have great hands. And he possesses rare spatial dynamism on the football field. So, of course, they'll be using Jarek McKinnon in the passing game. <laughs> Duh! <laughs> and the beat reporters are saying he's going to receive 60% of the carries. <laughs> if Jarek McKinnon is efficient with his 60-plus percent of team running back opportunities, do the math. That's what an RB1 in fantasy looks like. But then I hear, oh, well, like Chris Johnson, Asiata is going to dominate the between the tackles grinder work, and he'll be more productive in fantasy. And just like Chris Johnson outproduced David Johnson in the first part of last season. Where are you getting that? I mean, that is a vapor take because it comes from nothing. None of the numbers indicate that Matt Asiata is capable of receiving the lion's share of the running back touches. And the beat reporters are telling you the opposite, that the lion's share of the touches are going to be funneled to Jarek McKinnon in the backfield, not Matt Asiata. But why are we even talking about what's going to happen this year when we can go back to 2014? What 
could be more fun than getting in a time machine and going back to 2014? Because in 2014, Asiata was in on 55% of the snaps. McKinnon was only in on 45% of the snaps. Yeah. Let's not overthink this. Let's just copy and paste the snap share from 2014 into our 2016 projections. It's only two years. I mean, what's two years for an NFL running back, right? I mean, it's like nothing. We'll use those players' respective 2014 snap shares for our projections. That makes perfect sense. That's what we should be doing. Not listening to the beat reporters. Also, not looking at the game logs from 2014 in which you saw Jarek McKinnon evolve as the season went on, receiving a higher and higher and higher snap share and a larger and larger and larger percentage of the touches. We should not be doing any in-depth research with this. Just keep it simple. Looking at Jarek McKinnon's snap share from 2014 in his first year playing the running back position because he was a quarterback at the college level, using McKinnon's 2014 snap share to project his 2016 snap share represents the heights of bad analysis because that 2014 snap share isn't relevant anymore. Jarek McKinnon has had two more years to develop into one of the NFL's best running backs. That's what I believe Jarek McKinnon is. He has the all-terrain skill set to be a stud running back in the NFL. He didn't have that two years ago, but I think he has it now. Because I don't simply copy and paste numbers from 2014 to make my 2016 projections. Who the hell does that? Well, in this case, a lot of people. In 2014, as a raw rookie playing the position for the first time, Jarek McKinnon received nearly a 50% snap share. That in and of itself is incredibly impressive. Think about that. One of the most impressive metrics on playerprofiler.com is Jarek McKinnon's 2014 snap share. Julian Edelman converted from quarterback to the wide receiver position, and he didn't receive meaningful snaps until his fifth year in the NFL. So if you extrapolate a Jarek McKinnon growth curve based on his competency in 2014, he looks like a potential bell cow back in the NFL. And he has the athleticism, right? I mean, isn't that all that matters? Extreme metrics takes all that matters is athleticism. Well, if that's the case, then Jarek McKinnon is the best running back in the NFL because he is the most athletic running back in the NFL by a wide margin. But fantasy analysts want so badly to at least appear contrarian. It's so hard to be contrarian because it's contrarian. So any chance fantasy analysts have to appear contrarian, they will grab it. And in this case, that means touting Matt Asiata. And the most vocal Matt Asiata proponent at this moment is Matthew Barry's player rankings caddy, Mike Clay. Because we're reading this from Mike Clay on Twitter. Quote, As much as we want McKinnon to break out, we'd be ignorant to expect anything more than a running back by committee featuring Matt Asiata. Right. Sure. Yeah. Ignorant. That's what I am. I can absolutely see Jarek McKinnon dominating the touches in Minnesota and being an RB1 in fantasy. And according to Mike Clay, that makes me ignorant. Yes. I'm ignorant. Of course. We release two shows a week. You listen every week. You know me very well. You know I'm ignorant, right? I'm ignorant. If anyone in fantasy football is ignorant, it's me, right? The guy behind playerprofiler.com. I'm ignorant. Most people think that, right? Isn't that pretty unanimous? not a stretch for Mike Clay to call me ignorant. 
He's not alone. Whether or not Mike Clay is right about me being ignorant doesn't change the fact that he's a liar because I know he doesn't want McKinnon to break out, quote unquote. I don't believe that for a second. And not only is he lying about wanting McKinnon to break out, the tweet is built on a straw man premise. No one is projecting McKinnon to be a top 12 running back this week. No one thinks that. And yet less than 12 running backs have received a greater than 70% opportunity share so far this season. That means all but 12 running backs in the NFL are members of committees. And if you want to see the stack rank list of running backs by opportunity share, go to playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis, and you can look up any metric on any position and sort it across the league. It's an incredibly powerful tool that everyone that listens to this show should be subscribing to. With data analysis, it took me 30 seconds to realize that that tweet from Mike Clay was pure gibberish. No one is saying that Jarek McKinnon is going to receive 90% of the touches. No one said that. You're erecting a straw man so you can knock it down solely to provoke Jarek McKinnon enthusiasts. That was the ultimate goal of the tweet. With data analysis, that tweet became transparent. We all know Asiata will be getting touches. So technically, the Minnesota backfield will be a committee. No one disputes that. It's a straw man premise. If Mike Clay is going to do every site projection for every fantasy football platform, he should probably know that most backfields are committees already. This sounds like a criticism of Mike Clay. It's really not. I don't think Mike Clay was trying to troll Jarek McKinnon enthusiasts. It came off that way, but I don't think that was his intention. I actually appreciated this tweet from Mike Clay more than most. That tweet was hyperbolic. That tweet was provocative. That tweet was condescending. So I loved it. That tweet appealed to my sensibilities because I'm hyperbolic. I'm provocative. I'm condescending. Mike Clay was speaking my language, even if touting Madaziata is misguided. And I most enjoyed that that tweet provided a window into a quote-unquote expert like Mike Clay, who we all think of as made of wires. But that tweet revealed typical fantasy football emotions, lashing out after his key player was hurt and everyone is celebrating the backup. Many of us would lash out on Twitter after that event. It was a jerk tweet, but it was also one of his best. Because it showed, yeah, you know, Mike Clay, he's human like the rest of us. But the problem that Mike Clay is having right now is that he's overexposed. We're heading into week three, and Mike Clay has too many media responsibilities. The very next tweet on Mike Clay's timeline. Looks like I'll be talking a lot today. We have the Next Level Fantasy Show on Sirius at 9, then the Fantasy Forecast Pod at lunch, then I'll be on SportsCenter at 7.45. Busy day. Busy day for the overexposed Mike Clay, which begs the question. With the exception of that cliche segment where the fantasy host just mails it in by bringing on a beat reporter to talk so they don't have to, when does Mike Clay have time to do real, meaningful fantasy football research to help solve the McKinnon-Aziata puzzle? The answer is he doesn't. And that's how a trusted fantasy analyst becomes a talking head that no one that knows anything actually pays attention to anymore. That Mike Clay has evolved into a generic 
fantasy football talking head on television is revealed by the next tweet on his timeline, in which he writes, I'll say this on Aaron Rodgers. I love the guy, but I thought the, quote, oh, Jordy is back, everything is fine now, end quote, narrative was dangerous. Really? First of all, that's the most flaccid, post-vasectomy, told-you-so tweet in the history of social media. And it's a lie! I know it's a lie because Mike Clay drafted Aaron Rodgers as his second quarterback before most of his league mates had even one quarterback in the Apex Writers League. So no, Mike Clay did not think that overdrafting Aaron Rodgers was quote-unquote dangerous just because Jordy Nelson was back. Mike Clay was so in the tank for Aaron Rodgers that he took a second quarterback in lieu of a wide receiver. The first receiver he drafted in that league was Tavon Austin. That's how much Mike Clay loved Aaron Rodgers before the season. So get out of here with these lame, half-baked, told-you-so tweets. Someone tell Mike Clay to just stop tweeting altogether. Don't you have enough platforms, Mike Clay? Save the bad analysis for your radio show and your podcast and your sports center hits. You don't need to exacerbate it with bad tweets. And no, Mike, Asiata is not a better pickup than Jarek McKinnon. And you are lying when you say you want Jarek McKinnon to become a thing because we know you don't want Jarek McKinnon to become a thing because you drafted Adrian Peterson in a lot of leagues and you didn't draft Jarek McKinnon because I was the one drafting Jarek McKinnon in that Apex Writers League. Mike Clay saying that he wants Jarek McKinnon to become a thing as much as anyone is the most transparent deception we've seen in fantasy football so far this season. I mean, the blatant falsehood. But I think Mike Clay would admit, just like I would admit, that we don't actually know what the touch distribution between Matt Asiata and Jarek McKinnon will be. All we can do is stash the player with the most upside in case best case scenario hits. And no running back drafted the double digit rounds and certainly no running back claimed on waivers this year has more upside than Jarek McKinnon. Forget Dwayne Washington. Forget Matt Asiata. Forget Fozzie Whitaker. Just focus on getting your hands on Jarek McKinnon. Use this cloud of bad fantasy football analysis that is muddling the outlook of the Minnesota backfield to go out and acquire Jarek McKinnon. Because if Jarek McKinnon hits, he's a league winner. Matt Asiata is not. But Mike Clay can't see that far into the future. Why? Because Mike Clay is a prisoner of his own preseason take on Adrian Peterson. ESPN had Adrian Peterson as its number one running back this year. Think about that. Who is the brains behind the ESPN rankings and projections? Mike Clay. So we know Mike Clay is in the tank for Adrian Peterson. His Jarek McKinnon analysis is soaked in bias. It has no validity whatsoever because Mike Clay is currently tilting, ranking Adrian Peterson of all players in the number one position is a catastrophic blunder from both a draft concepts and an individual player analysis standpoint. You shouldn't be drafting running backs in the early rounds. 
And if you are going to draft a running back in the early rounds, it sure as hell shouldn't be Adrian Peterson. Should be David Johnson. Or if you wait a couple rounds, LaShawn McCoy, not Adrian Peterson. We were saying this in July and August and September. It's not just Mike Clay. There are a lot of fantasy football analysts currently touting Matt Asiata. It makes you think. Why are these analysts trying to be so contrarian here? Because Matt Asiata is clearly not a league winner. So that's when you have to look at the mechanics behind the bad sports takes. And that's when you see, oh, wow, this person is an Adrian Peterson fanatic. And he sees Jarek McKinnon as an existential threat to Adrian Peterson. So how could he possibly craft a reasonable, unbiased position on Jarek McKinnon? He can't. The answer is he can't. But beyond that, think about what Jarek McKinnon stands for. Jarek McKinnon is synonymous with sports metrics and analytics. We talked about this with Matthew Friedman. The same people who propped up Devontae Adams because they hate Jeff Janis. And more importantly, they hate the metrics people who like Jeff Janis. Think about it. Those are the same people running behind Matt Asiata and pushing him forward on the stage, putting him in the spotlight. Don't look at Jarek McKinnon. Look at this cardboard cutout of a running back instead. Anyone but Jarek McKinnon. We can't let Jarek McKinnon become a thing because then those people are right and we hate those people because those people think they're smarter than everyone else. But I have news for you. We are smarter than everyone else. And advising fantasy gamers to pick up Matt Asiata over Jarek McKinnon is foolish. But again, it's not just Mike Clay doing this. Michael Fabiano at NFL.com, he's practicing the same post-traumatic bad sports take cognitive dissonance. According to Fabiano, Asiata will get all the red zone work, which includes goal line carries, and that's gold in fantasy football. Yes, 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 yes. Michael Fabiano, the king of the format cherry pick. If I like a pass catcher like Devontae Freeman, I'll talk about him in a PPR context. If I like a non-pass catcher like Adrian Peterson or Matt Asiata, I'll talk about him in a standard league context. Just another sleight of hand maneuver in the confirmation bias-soaked fantasy analyst bag of tricks. Because it's not true that goal line carries are the gold of fantasy football. No. Catches are. Ask the Oritic owners. It's also untrue that Jarek McKinnon won't get any red zone work. How could anyone possibly make that assertion? That assumes that there's an invisible McKinnon fence at the 20-yard line. It also assumes that fantasy running backs need goal line carries to score. That's not true either. It's a total fallacy. The percentage of running back touchdowns has never been more skewed to long runs than now. Why? Because NFL teams are throwing it on the goal line now more than ever. That's why even though Devontae Freeman's getting the goal line work, Tevin Coleman is the one scoring the touchdowns because he's scoring them from the 30-yard line. That's what Jarek McKinnon is capable of, not Matt Asiata. But fantasy gamers already know that the pass-catching space backs are superior to the between-the-tackles grinders. We all already know this, Michael Fabiano. Look at their ADPs before the season. Look at Devontae Freeman's ADP versus Tevin Coleman's ADP. Look at Danny Woodhead's ADP versus Melvin Gordon's ADP. Look at Dion Lewis's ADP versus LeGarrette Blunt's ADP. Look at Gio Bernard's ADP versus Jeremy Hill's ADP. Look at Duke Johnson's ADP versus Isaiah Crowell's ADP. We already know all of this. We already know what to look for. The things you're saying to prop up Matt Asiata are ridiculous. 
I feel like I'm trapped in a time machine with Michael Fabiano going back to 1995. He has all of his hair, and he's still giving bad fantasy advice. Now, while we're on the subject of NFL.com fantasy, let's go talk to an NFL fantasy analyst that actually knows what he's talking about, Alex Gelhar. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio program. Alex Gelhar from NFL.com. He's an analyst for NFL Fantasy. Follow him at Alex Gelhar. Talk to me. How's it going? It's a pleasure to be here on the, the Underworld podcast. You're talking into the Underworld. It's like one of those... At the playground, there's these megaphones where you talk into the megaphone and then you can hear the child on the other end of the playground. You're speaking into this megaphone and it's going down into the earth. And I am sitting under here, under the crust. And then as it was, it was the magma. I'm just floating in the mantle and that's how we're communicating. But somehow it's really clear. <laughs> you would think that there would be a lot more interference, but there's actually not. So I want to get right into it. We've had an RB apocalypse. It happens every year. Last year, week four or five, everybody was hurt. And the NFL's too violent of a place. It's not meant for the human body. We had those discussions last year and then just copy and paste, rinse, repeat. Here we go again, right? Yeah, it's it was a shocking, shocking week to just see that that list of injuries, especially at the running back position, grow and grow and grow and grow as the day went on. Amir Abdullah, Jonathan Stewart. I mean, you all know the list. I mean, check NFL Fantasy's news and you can see all the little ambulance signs. You can check to see all the little Red Cross icons next to all those players. The player that people are most excited about right now is an upset. I didn't see this coming. I saw the injuries come in on Sunday, but I didn't see this guy garnering the most excitement, and that's Fozzie Whitaker. <laughs> Can you explain the fascination with Fozzie Whitaker right now? Well, I mean, for one, he's got a great name. His first name is Fozzie, so people are going to gravitate towards that. But I mean, secondly, I think it's that instant visceral reaction when the injury happens and you see somebody immediately come in and produce. He had 19 touches for 131 yards against the 49ers. So it's nothing to turn your nose up against. But why I think you were surprised and other people like me who spent way too much time doing this is because we know that even though Cameron Artis Payne was inactive this week, that's simply because he doesn't play on special teams. And with Stewart out, as Ron Rivera has already said, for week three, Cameron Artis Payne's going to get activated and he's going to get touches. Last year, during the three weeks when Stewart was out, from week uh, 15 to 17, Cameron Artis Payne saw around 53% of the backfield touches. So this is going to be an ugly committee. And uh, I, I mean, it's not one that I'm racing out on the waiver wire to, to add anybody from quite yet. That's right. This is what we call a microwaved waiver wire ad in Fozzie Whitaker. You have that one burst of production in the week in which the starter goes down and then they split the practice reps and then the news comes out about who's going to be starting and then all of a sudden you spent 30% of your waiver wire budget on Tuesday and then by Friday he's not even starting. I mean, this is how it works with these microwaved waiver wire backs. Cameron Artis Payne is just as jaggy as Fozzie. I mean, I love this. Jaggy and Fozzie. <laughs> this seems like a cartoon for kids where replacement level running backs drive around in a van trying to solve mysteries. 
I mean, it, it certainly does. It, it's, you add in Mike Tolbert there as like the, the hefty comedic oh. relief, and oh. it's, a, it's a backfield situation you don't want to be a part of, to be honest. <laughs> Mike, Mike Tolbert's like a cartoon monster. This guy, this is perfect. This is just a ragtag crew. They just stumble into these capers, and then they solve the crime in the most serendipitous way possible. That's this Carolina backfield. I'm not interested in any of these guys because I don't think that any of them have above-average NFL talent profiles. Certainly not Jonathan Stewart-level talented. And if Jonathan Stewart wasn't productive before he was hurt— What makes you think that any of these players on the running back depth chart are going to be productive just because Fozzie Whitaker ran for 100 yards against the San Francisco 49ers in the second half of a blowout does not mean he's worth a 30% free agent auction budget bid. No. Are you buying either of these guys or is it just a stay away backfield given there's options on other backfields? I mean, if you lose out on other better acquisitions this week, Fozzie might be the guy I'd go with just because while Cam doesn't throw it to running backs a lot, Fozzie offers that. And especially in this week three matchup against the Vikings, it seems to be the kind of game that might favor a back like Fozzie over Cameron Artis Payne just getting stuffed in the middle of the line. But yeah, still, that's like that's like the consolation prize on the waiver wire this week is Fozzie Whitaker. He's the consolation prize. And when you go to playerprofiler.com and you look up Cameron Artis Payne and you look up Fozzie Whitaker, you don't see any metrics above the 50th percentile except one across both profiles there's one Fozzie Whitaker's college target share at Texas 80th percentile so Fozzie Whitaker is a quality space back I mean he's not big his proper role for an NFL offense is third down two-minute drill running routes out of the backfield securing the pass, getting upfield. That's what he can do. Those are the things that he can do. He could be a poor man's Theo Riddick for the next few weeks. That's best case scenario for the running back blob in Carolina. In Minnesota, it's a lot more exciting because while we do have Matt Asiata and he's right up there with Mike Tolbert in terms of just blobs, Jarek McKinnon's there and that's exciting. It's super exciting because it seems, you know, you somebody who studies player profile and stuff, we know know, McKinnon has a passionate fan base on in in fantasy and draft Twitter for his athletic profile and his ability. And people are going to point to 2014 when Adrian Peterson missed 15 games of the suspension and Matt Matt Asiata was like the RB17 or whatever. But that was because McKinnon was a rookie and was coming as a converted quarterback out of college. Now he's had years in the system. He looks ready to explode. The runs he was putting together in the preseason, he's got the the between-the-tackles ability now. He's got the vision. He's got the explosiveness, the agility. I think he's the guy that you know, Adrian Peterson's timetable isn't uh, isn't clear right now, but it's an over thirty year old running back with a torn meniscus. That's not a great it's not a great start for that. So I think McKinnon's the one to go get on the waiver wire. Asiata's going to have a role, but McKinnon's the guy. I know you and I are you and I were both uh, interacting or retweeted a great note from uh, Phil. He's a writer with uh, Football Guys at Phil TWR on Twitter. That from week six to twelve of twenty fourteen, when McKinnon had earned more of the coach's trust, he had sixty more rush attempts than Asiata, averaged almost two and a half more yards per attempt than him and had six more targets in the passing game as well. So this is the guy to own in what could be an improving offense. I agree 100%. And now we're two years later. He's had two years of development. He was a converted quarterback, but 
During his time at Georgia Southern, he rushed 20 times for every three pass attempts. So he was very much a runner, not a passer at Georgia State. But think about it. You're still taking the quarterback practice reps. The quarterback can't throw the ball to himself out of the backfield. So he wasn't catching passes. He wasn't pass blocking. That's a big part of running back development at the NFL. And now we're in year three of the Jarek McKinnon project and he is like this NASA rocket ship that took three years to compile and now (laughs) it's all systems go Alex and I think even if the the team still defers some touches to Asiata in the early goings say next week against Carolina it's not going to take long to see that McKinnon is the back that they need in that backfield behind a shaky offensive line Asiata's simply not going to make guys miss in the backfield when their guards are getting blown up like they were these first two weeks. McKinnon is the difference maker in that offense, and and he's the guy to go get. Now in Tampa Bay, it's more clear cut. Charles Sims is the guy there now, is he not? Uh, I agree, 100%. I mean, as long as Doug Martin's hamstring injury keeps him out, which could be for for a couple weeks here, or you know maybe less time, hopefully, but Sims is a guy that is also a favorite of draft Twitter. He's got a good athletic, explosive profile. Came in as a good pass catching back. He's got soft hands. But over these last couple years, much like McKinnon, he's improved as a between-the-tackles runner. And now that he's going to get a featured backload in Tampa Bay, it's all systems go. I mean, this guy's going to be close probably to an RB1 in the ranks this week if Doug Martin is officially ruled out. He is an RB1. He absolutely has an RB1 profile. Best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is DeMarco Murray, and that's a very close comp. Similar stature, similar athletic measurables across the board, speed, burst. Many in draft Twitter, however, were not Charles Sims fans because the analysis of Charles Sims coming out of West Virginia was, (gasps) upright runner. He's too upright, Alex. He just runs so upright. He doesn't have enough of that waistband. As I measure this waistband from my computer at home, watching West Virginia Mountaineers game tape, I'm just not seeing the waistband I like. Normally, I like to see a 15% degree of bend, and I'm only seeing a 12% degree of bend in (laughs) Charles Sims. Oh, he's a very upright runner. We should stay away from him. Well, DeMarco Murray was known as an upright runner coming out of Oklahoma. Do you know who else came out of Oklahoma and was viewed as an upright runner? Who would that be? Uh, Just a guy named Adrian Peterson who we were just talking about who's ticketed for the Hall of Fame. So now Charles Sims has shown that he's incredibly elusive in space one of the best satellite backs in the nfl he runs great routes he has great hands and when he gets his hands on the ball he makes defenders miss i don't care whether or not anyone thinks he runs upright he moves the ball down the field at a very efficient rate so he will absolutely be in the top 12 on the playerprofiler.com running back rankings if Doug Martin is ruled out. I agree with you again. Now, in Detroit, it's more muddled because Theo Riddick does not have the size that Charles Sims brings to the table. Theo Riddick does not profile as an every-down running back in the NFL, which will open up opportunity for a man named Dwayne Washington, who looked good last week. What do you think of the Lions' backfield conundrum? 
Uh, well, I'm fr it's frustrating, first of all, because Amir Abdullah was playing so well this year, and it was it was it felt good for all of us that believed in him last year to see him performing so well, and now he's got what's potentially a serious foot injury. Damn it! So you're right; it does it does open the door for Dwayne Washington. He was number one in production premium, the situation agnostic efficiency metric on PlayerProfiler.com. That injury other than the Danny Woodhead injury which was a complete death blow that injury irritated me second most in week two I, I agree 100 percent and uh in the interim I mean it's going to be interesting to see if they want to turn over a sizable amount of that between the tackles load to Dwayne Washington here with Abdullah out Riddick was still and true to what they said in the offseason getting some carries between the tackles as you mentioned, he doesn't have the size or the, the profile to be a featured back, but I still think he'll get the lion's share of the touches. But Washington is a guy I'd rather add on the waiver wire over any of those Carolina backs because he's already gotten goal line and red zone work. And if he gets an increased uh, amount of touches between the 20s, he could be a really solid flex play f going forward here until Abdullah comes back. That is a contrarian waiver wire take because you know most people will be stack ranking Fozzie Whitaker in the number one running back slot, and they may not even be adding Dwayne Washington at all, but we agree Dwayne Washington is actually the better bet over the next five weeks. We both believe that Dwayne Washington will outscore Fozzie Whitaker, but when you're doing your weekly rankings, the big winner in Detroit is Theo Riddick, and he's a lion that will be getting the lion's share of the touches. See what you did there. What I do find amusing are the Zach Zenner zealots. Ah, that's good. good little alliteration there. These people drafted Zach Zenner in their dynasty rookie drafts last year, and they've been waiting for this moment, right? They've been waiting and waiting. The Zach Zenner zealots have a Amir Abdullah voodoo doll that they just jab and jab and jab and jab and jab every week. And then it happens. He's out, guys. Congratulations, Zach Zenner zealots. He's out. You won. Oh, wait. What the fuck did we win? We won nothing. He's inactive as usual. It's the Dwayne Washington short yarded show. Sorry. <laughs> Very true. It's uh, it's uh, sad we'll have to pour some out for the Zach Zenner zealots, but uh, their moment in the sun is not yet coming. You did it, right? I had to practice that before the show, but you just hit the Zach Zenner zealot perfectly. In Atlanta, we have a flip. Devontae Freeman, second round pick. Tevin Coleman, 10th round pick, but one is producing like a second round pick and his name's Tevin Coleman. What's going on? Well, I mean, let's let's slow the roll here with him producing like a second round pick. He's happened to get the, the touchdown this past week and he had the one big play the week before. But I mean, Devonta Freeman is still running better than Tevin Coleman. He's averaging more yards per carry in this past week when he got the requisite touches, he, he showed that he's the better pure between the tackles runner. Coleman still has that explosive home run ability, as we saw on his touchdown run and as we saw on his catch in week one. But I think what this is turning into is just a straight committee. And both are going to be usable. Both will be frustrating. But both now, as much as the Tevin Coleman truthers would like to have him be the featured back, we would. And as much as the Devonta Freeman we really would. truthers would like to have him win it back, this is a committee. And like it or not, both of these guys are going to be flex plays moving forward. As enthusiastic as I am about Tevin Coleman, when people ask me point blank, should I start Tevin Coleman, my answer is usually no. No, you should be starting Charles <laughs> Sims. You should be starting Jarek McKinnon. You should be starting Theo Riddick. You shouldn't be starting Tevin Coleman for all the reasons Alex Gelhard just outlined. 
Think about the running backs that will be in starting lineups in week three. Fozzie Whitaker, that's probably a mistake, but it's going to happen. Charles Sims, Jarek McKinnon. I think we agree. Theo Riddick has RB1 in fantasy potential in the absence of Amir Abdullah. You've got Tevin Coleman and Devontae Freeman flexible. Uh Uh, There's a lot of new running backs and a lot of running backs that were mid-round picks that are now locks to be fantasy viable week to week moving forward, which brings me to a question. When is Michael Fabiano going to take the L on zero RB? Now, I saw this in the show sheet, and while, yes, zero RB is looking good so far, it's it's two weeks. Let's not overreact. There's no reason to dance on the grave because on the flip side, Keenan Allen's out for the season. Doug Baldwin's hurt. The Packers' offense is in shambles. Oh. Allen Robinson has done absolutely oh. nothing. Oh. Odell Beckham hasn't caught a oh. touchdown. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the top, while well, you want to, you know, while well, zero RBers want to dance on the grave of people that drafted running backs, you look at the top of top scorers for wide receivers, and it's guys like Willie Sneed, Stephon Diggs, Larry Fitzgerald, Mike Wallace, Corey Coleman, a bunch of guys that went late in drafts. So it's still there's still no perfect draft strategy, but the the theory behind zero RB is proving a little more reliable in that at least it is anti-fragile and those guys all haven't been injured yet i mean hope julio jones's ankle holds up and stuff among others but uh you know the, a lot of a lot of big wide receivers have still been putting up l's for their for their owners here do you know who i don't mind putting up l's any green bay wide receiver receiving passes from aaron Rodgers. When I look at the box score, my first hope is that the Green Bay Packers have zero points because I do not want Aaron Rodgers to produce at the NFL level until he is humbled and has to accept that Jeff Janis is a starting wide receiver on that team. And even if he thinks he's so much smarter than Jeff Janis because Jeff Janis went to Saginaw Valley State and Jeff Janis hunts in the offseason and Aaron Rodgers went to Berkeley and he's at soirees with his actress girlfriend. I don't care. I don't care if you and Jeff Janis don't get along. I don't care if you think you can be the number one quarterback in the NFL with a shopping cart with a mannequin arm attached to it, also known as Devontae Adams. You're proving that you can't. I don't care if you think you can. You can't. If you want to win, you have to go into Mike McCarthy's office, get on a knee, and say, give me Jeff Janis. (laughs) Jeff Janis only has one functional hand right now, but I agree with you on Devontae Adams. They're wasting plays. Oh, no. (laughs) Are you saying that Jeff Janis is actually the shopping cart with a mannequin arm? Just a really fast shopping cart? Like one of those shopping carts for kids with the race car on the front? Uh, but every time they throw at Devontae Adams, it's basically a wasted play right now. Oh! His best play of the year is fortunately getting P.I. called on him uh, when he was you know, going to the end zone against Minnesota. He did have the one nice catch in week one, but that was more so Rodgers. It's just, it's baffling. That offense has a lot of issues, though. That's probably a, a topic for another podcast. It is, but they get along so well. Such a great connection. Aaron Rodgers trusts Devontae Adams. He can't trust Jeff Janet. There are a handful of other individual players that you can wave around to help refute zero RB. One of them, unfortunately, it's Derrick Henry. What are we going to do with Derrick Henry? Is it time to, you know, you know? Uh, no, it is not. It is not time to, you know. I think we need to hold on to Derrick Henry because he still, to me, just looks like so, so much of a more complete and explosive back in that offense for Tennessee. Yes. 
And I hope that it's simply a matter of time before that group wisens up and realizes that if they want to continue to win games, they need to give him more touches right now. Like, he's only had 14 rush attempts and three receptions through two games so far. Well, meanwhile, DeMarco Murray's had 37 touches. Like, Derrick Henry is a good player. And, like, that run that Murray had last week, that 67-yarder, I mean, he was cooked, like, 25 yards into that run. And if it just hadn't been a perfect storm of opening hole and defense not being there, he wouldn't have made it 67 yards. Derrick Henry takes that thing a lot farther than DeMarco Murray does if he has it. Murray will be living on that run for the next four weeks. Week two was worst-case scenario for Derrick Henry enthusiasts because DeMarco Murray had a long run and the Titans won the game. Mm -hmm. The confluence of those two factors will inevitably delay the ascendance of Derrick Henry, a player who's already ascended before our eyes in spectacular fashion, Stephon Diggs. Yes. <laughs> is it possible? I know it sounds crazy, Alex. I know it does. It does. But is it possible that Stephon Diggs is better than Amari Cooper? I mean, if at the end of the year we look back at the tape and everything that they put up uh, in the stat sheet, I think it could be entirely within the range of outcomes. Stephon Diggs is just a complete player. Now that they're moving him around the formation and allowing him to get off the line of scrimmage in different ways, he can both go deep and, and win contested catches on the outside, and he can juke guys out of their socks on the on the inside slot routes. So not that Amari can't do the same. He's, he's proven that as well. But, man, Stephon Diggs is, is rising, and I think he's becoming every week starter right now in fantasy. No doubt. I told my wife who to start for her work league, and it's a shallow league. They start three receivers, and the receivers I told her to start were all elite because she went zero RB because, of course. Mm -hmm. And at the last minute, her instincts told her to put Stephon Diggs in, and she showed it to me last night. And we high-fived and hugged. We didn't have sex because we've been married for a long time, so we don't do that. But we <laughs> definitely it was a real, like, a hug, like a gal bro hug. It was really great. That was a feel-good moment with my wife and I. We talked before the season about how the Saints will use Brandon Cooks. He'll be that queen chess piece. They move all around the formation. He can play every position, deep routes, short routes, screens, goes, everything. Well, that's how Minnesota has decided to use Stephon Diggs, just the queen chess piece, just trying to find the mismatch, the whole offense geared around getting Stephon Diggs the ball. This is a sight to behold and fortunately those of us that went wide receiver six in our drafts started with six receivers the sixth round receiver to get all along was Stephon Diggs if you weren't drafting Stephon Diggs in that draft slot you were drafting Corey Coleman oh god you saw the game so I'm sure you like Corey Coleman I mean who can't like Corey Coleman at this point but being real, should Corey Coleman owners still be afraid of Josh Gordon, or or has Corey Coleman ascended to a place where Josh Gordon will never compete with him for that number one wide receiver chair? I think Corey Coleman owners, as wonderful as Sunday was, have a lot to be concerned about right now for two reasons. One, Josh Gordon's coming back soon, and two, we don't know the severity of Josh McCown's injury, so... We could have Cody Kessler under center. We could have somebody that's not even on the roster right now under center. And that just, when you've got two athletic guys, three even with Terrell Pryor competing for targets, it's just, this This might have been our, our peak for Corey Coleman as much as it saddens me to say that. Sell Corey Coleman here. It's difficult for me because I'm in multiple formats 
redraft in Dynasty. And as a Corey Coleman Dynasty owner, it's just a party. People can send me trade offers where I trade away Corey Coleman. And I can just laugh and hit delete and laugh and hit delete, laugh and hit delete. But then in redraft, when I receive these offers, people want Corey Coleman. I have to consider them. I do. I have to. It's delicious. As Corey Coleman is, coming off a two-touchdown game is the time to trade a wide receiver like Corey Coleman, who is about to get a major quarterback downgrade. Josh McCown was a major quarterback upgrade from Robert Griffin III, and now Charlie Whitehurst was just signed. So that qualifies as a major downgrade. The only saving grace for Corey Coleman is that at Baylor, he was a yards after the catch machine. I mean, he was a yards after the catch superhero. He he would put on a superhero suit before every Baylor game, and it would just allow him to churn yards after the catch like we've never seen. So what they can do is start to throw the ball to Corey Coleman closer to the line of scrimmage and then allow him to explode forward and continue to compile yards after the catch. But without Josh McCown owning Corey Coleman may not be the right move in redraft if you can get something for him. On the other coast, we have a very different scenario. We have a wide receiver who went from Cleveland to San Diego, received the biggest possible quarterback upgrade, and now is the undisputed number one wide receiver on that target totem pole, Travis Benjamin. Travis Benjamin's ceiling is? Um, mid to high wide receiver two. Uh, he's not gonna he's not gonna break into that wide receiver one tier, tier. But I think with attached to Philip Rivers and potentially getting more targets, and it was good to see the offense do things more creatively to get him the ball in week two, running a few more of those drag routes and other other options and still taking him deep. But uh, I just think that ball is gonna get spread around a little too much for him to be considered, you know, the back end of that wide receiver one tier. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if he finishes 2016 as the wide receiver 15, 16 overall. Wow, that is another case for drafting wide receivers late. I can't believe I'm saying this is so crazy. I'm saying it. Crazy. There's a lot of wide receivers that we drafted in rounds one, two, three, four, five, six that are underperforming. John Brown and Michael Floyd are two of them. How is it possible that both John Brown and Michael Floyd are both underperforming? That seems mathematically impossible given how many points the Arizona Cardinals have scored. Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is that that week one game was kind of just a total mess. And then week two, the defense scored a bunch. And David Johnson has had a huge role in this passing game right now, as a lot of us thought, which is why many of us viewed him as the safest elite running back to draft in fantasy. But John Brown also, you know, missing all that time in the concussion protocol hasn't helped. And then uh, and then Larry Fitzgerald is just is getting uh, somewhat surprisingly getting all of the targets in uh, Arizona right now. So. I would expect Michael Floyd to bounce back. He's still getting targeted in the red zone. John Brown is worrisome just because he's, he's they've been so slow to work him back after that concussion. <sighs> Larry Fitzgerald has been doing what Larry Fitzgerald does for the last 10 years, dominate the target share in Arizona. But speaking of John Brown, Allen Robinson and the next Allen Robinson and John Brown and Matt Harmon's next John Brown have all missed expectations this year. So are you checking on Matt Harmon? Is he going to be okay? Should we consider a reception intervention? No, no, no. He's, I mean, you know, I live with Matt, for those that don't know, uh, that listen to the show, and he's he's doing fine. You know, Tyler Lockett had a great had a great game last week, but he was joking to me. He's like, man, I should have made digs this year's Allen Robinson instead of Tyler Lockett, but he was high on both of those guys. So 
he's 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 doing all right. He's doing all right. The John Brown one hurts him though. I know on a personal level because he loves John Brown. I like John Brown too. The funny thing with John Brown is his teammates can't agree on his nickname. One calls him Smokey, the other call him Smoke. So Carson Palmer calls him Smoke, and then Larry Fitzgerald calls him Smokey. I mean, if I had to choose, I would go with Smoke. I wouldn't respond to Smokey. I don't like Smokey. Sounds like oh, it's Smokey in this room. So it's Smoke. That sounds like I'm so fast when you try to tackle me, all you get is smoke from my exhaust. I like smoke better than Smokey. What do you think? Uh, I, I could be okay with either. I think I think the Smokey nickname comes from a good place too, but, but smoke just has a good ring to it. It ha- kind of has a superhero name to it, you know? That's exactly what I'm thinking. Someone who would never be considered a football superhero, but continues to produce in the most under-the-radar way is Kenny Britt. We talked about how Larry Fitzgerald's been doing Larry Fitzgerald things for a long time. Kenny Britt's been doing Kenny Britt things for a long time, except that one epic first half he had one year in Tennessee. I keep looking at the stack-ranked list of wide receivers, and I keep seeing Kenny Britt mixed in there. He's my under-the-radar 1,000-yard receiver this year. Who's yours? I mean, if I, I think if I had to pick one, there's a, there's a couple guys that are really interesting, like Quincy Inunua. I mean, Kenny Britt. I, I'm not believing that he's going to hold up quite yet, but the one I would pick out of the list that's the most surprising is Will Fuller because he's a guy when the Texans drafted him, I was like, oh, that's a great football pick, but it's not going to be good for fantasy. You know, I figured he'd help open things up for Nuke Hopkins. And here we are sitting at week two and Fuller's the second wide receiver, I think, in NFL history to ever have back-to-back 100-yard games to start his career. And while he's still having those drops, he's playing very well. And the Texans clearly had a big role planned out for him, and they're executing that on a week-to-week basis. So he's a guy that that uh, you know jump ahead too. I was I was a little wrong on in fantasy. I didn't think he was going to be that relevant at all this year, but I've quickly course corrected. And Fuller's honestly approaching like every week starter status. I was wrong about Will Fuller through two weeks, but I'm not quite ready to start turning the ship quite yet open your heart let will fuller in the rudder is still pointed at a similar angle as it was before the season because we knew will fuller was a tremendous field stretcher coming out of notre dame that was going to be his role in the houston texans offense he would play it perfectly open things up for new copkins exactly like you said and i think that's happening and his quarterback is brock osweiler historically an inefficient quarterback going all the way back to his time at arizona state so it's very difficult for me to suspend disbelief and think of will fuller as a fantasy viable asset week to week because no one wins fantasy championships playing the second wide receiver tethered to a quarterback like Brock Osweiler. Historically, that's not a winning formula. Well, I mean, Brock Osweiler, you know, his his time in the NFL as a fantasy-relevant quarterback is relatively short, but something we see bear out with wide receivers is that targets are greater than quarterback play. Something Harmon said on our podcast recently in terms of Stefan Diggs. He's leading the NFL in reception and receiving yards right now after catching passes from Sean Hill and Sam Bradford for two weeks. And the fact of the matter is, Will Fuller is getting a lot of targets in Houston. He's only one behind DeAndre Hopkins right now, 19 to 18 through two weeks. And those two combined own about 54% of the overall targets in Houston. So while it is dicey to, to start attaching, you know, or might feel dicey attaching your fantasy hopes to a guy like Will Fuller, I think I think that it's time to get in on it because he's not just getting deep shots. They're they're working him in on short and intermediate routes and using his speed and athleticism in all sorts of ways to, to open up that offense. 
I can't believe we're touting all these mid-round and late-round wide receivers completely disputing zero RB. I can't believe this is happening. I'm disappointed in myself. But yes, Will Fuller's target share is over 26%. That's that's nothing to turn your nose up at. That's top 20 in the NFL. A second wide receiver on the target totem pole can receive a significant target share on a low-volume offense. Sounds like another conundrum, right? Here's how it can happen. When your running back does not command targets, Lamar Miller has never been a great space back, doesn't have a 50 reception season on his resume, going all the way back to his days in Miami. Their third receiver is Braxton Miller, and he went out with an injury, and even if he wasn't injured, he only has one year of wide receiver experience in his career, and their tight end is some unholy mix of C.J. Fedorowicz and Ryan Griffin If all the other options are bad, it makes sense that every target would funnel out to DeAndre Hopkins and Will Fuller. That's the target math that we're looking at. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's part of the equation. And, uh, it's, but I mean, that's, you know, we want to target highly concentrated passing offenses because it can elevate players. The same thing happened last year in Oakland with Crabtree and Cooper and the other options behind them being completely ancillary things. And in Denver with Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders, like whether or not we love the player or think the other players behind them are any good, like it's, like you said, 26% is a, is nothing to, to run away from in terms of target share. I can't believe it's taken me this long to figure out who Will Fuller is. Will Fuller is this year's Emmanuel Sanders. That's his comp. In 2016, Will Fuller will be what Emmanuel Sanders was in Denver in 2015 with Brock Osweiler. Wow. 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 Figured that out. (laughs) Thank you for helping me figure that out, Alex. My pleasure. Yes. (laughs) That was... I was really not getting it until now. Staying with late round wide receivers, I can't believe I'm saying this. Paul Richardson is one of the healthiest Seahawks at the moment. That's unbelievable. It's it's pretty wild. Um, but thankfully, you know, Doug Baldwin's MRI came back negative. Sounds like Tyler Lockett's going to be okay as well. But you're right. In, in a total upset, Paul Richardson is somehow the healthiest wide receiver there. So many upsets this week. What's not an upset was Jay Cutler underwhelming. Jay Cutler getting injured. Jay Cutler letting your fantasy team down. For the 10th straight year, Jay Cutler has been a disappointing quarterback. And yet every year, there's hope in what Jay Cutler can be. We saw even more hope infused in Matthew Stafford, particularly going into week two. He was a top five quarterback play on the fantasy pros quarterback rankings and then he did what Matthew Stafford has always done what Jake Cutler has always done ratchet those expectations up and then disappoint fantasy owners in epic fashion so what do we do with Matthew Stafford is he good is he bad what is this guy now the thing with Matthew Stafford disappointing in week two not even his fault the guy had two or three touchdowns taken off the board because of silly and some would say even questionable penalties so, like, he was in a good spot and did produce. Things just got taken away from him. I think it's okay to believe in Stafford. I actually, I was down on him to start the year, but ended up scooping him up on waivers or drafting him super late in a couple leagues just in case. And now I'm pretty much riding him as my every week starter because I think the way Jim Bob Cooter has catered that offense to Matthew Stafford, which is now predicated on short, efficient throws instead of hurling the ball downfield to Calvin Johnson into triple coverage, as was Stafford's MO earlier in his career, it's really turned him around and allowed him to flourish in this offense. He's not making as many mistakes. He's allowing his playmakers like Golden Tate, 
Theo Reddick to get yards after the catch. And then he does have a downfield threat in Marvin Jones, who I think is the number one receiver to own in that offense. But I'm totally okay with, with, with Stafford being my starter moving on. He's got some good matchups, got a great arsenal of pass catchers, and they've built this offense to let him succeed, much like what Hugh Jackson did before he left Cincinnati and how that offense worked itself around Andy Dalton's strength and turned him from a kind of a, a you know a punching bag in the NFL to a fantasy-relevant quarterback. Or what Adam Gaze did for Jay Cutler last year. I'm never going to let go of this Matthew Stafford, Jay Cutler comp, Alex Gellhart. You're never going to get me off that <laughs> one. But I agree, Matthew Stafford was just another reason to go late-round quarterback. The guys I was focused on in the later rounds, Tyrod Taylor, Jameis Winston, Phillip Rivers. Phillip Rivers. <laughs> Philip Rivers reminding everyone with amnesia in the fantasy football community that he's Philip Rivers, guys, just like Larry Fitzgerald, Larry Fitzgerald. But if you had to choose, I'll give you an arbitrary dichotomy, a contrived dichotomy. Okay. Who would you rather have for the rest of the season, Jameis Winston or Philip Rivers? I think if I have to pick one for the rest of the season, it might be Jameis Winston, simply because this, we know what he can do this past week. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong for Winston, whereas everything that could have gone right kind of went right for Phillip Rivers. He threw four touchdowns on like 24 pass attempts. I think both are going to be viable, but I'd rather take Winston in those a lot of those cushy matchups he's going to have in the AFC or in the NFC South, excuse me, against New Orleans, who just lost another cornerback this past week. Atlanta, who has some question marks on defense outside of Desmond Trufant. And even Carolina, well, they're a great defense. Their cornerbacks are all young and learning. And Blaine Gabbert just dropped a, a really solid fantasy performance against that defense as well. So I think the ceiling for Winston is a little higher. You might take some more lumps than you would with Phillip Rivers, but I'd rather chase that ceiling at quarterback with Winston over the rest of the year than uh, than Phillip Rivers. Can't believe I did one of those cliche pick between two random guys contrived dichotomies on my podcast. I apologize again for doing that to you. I also like Jameis Winston. When are your fantasy playoffs, Alex Gelhar? I mean, for the most part, I think they start in week 12 or 13, depending on the league. And they go through week 16, right? Yes, ho- hopefully. I have one league where we do a, a, a winning, a, there's a payout for total points. So we play week 17 just for fun in that one as well. But the playoffs always end and should end in week 16. Jameis Winston plays the New Orleans Saints in week 14 and week 16. That's a pretty nice setup for the playoffs right there. Let that sink in, fantasy footballers. Week 14, week 16, Jameis Winston, New Orleans Saints. (laughs) Shiver just ran down my spine. Every time I look at my fantasy football box score, I'm waiting for one of my tight ends to do something, (laughs) anything. Look at what Greg Olson did last week. I don't own Greg Olson. I want a week like that from one of my tight ends at some point, but we're getting nothing from that position. So what do we do with the tight end position at this point? I think this is we're right now we're totally in streaming area with tight ends where you're going to want to try and pick and choose or have a couple guys that you can rotate in because the production is so spotty. But thankfully, we have a couple guys emerging. Dennis Pitta, we saw him. It was, the kind of writing was on the wall in week one, and then he exploded in week two. I picked him up and streamed him in a bunch of spots, and I'm going to be relying on him moving forward. I think a guy like Jacob Tammy might oh. even be interesting to start streaming. I know it's it sounds gross, but he's been putting up a lot of numbers. 
And while we can get it, you know, grab a guy like Jesse James. But I mean, man, it is it is a tough spot. So it's one where you really and it's so hard to play the matchups. I know people like Adam Harstad have done the research and it's hard, but can't just just find those receivers that are getting a healthy target share. It might be in a good spot and, and do the best you can, because, man, it is a wasteland out there right now. I mean, Vance McDonald's the third, the second highest scoring tight end in fantasy, and he has three catches. <laughs> exactly. Right there. You nailed it. My wife won her matchup with Stephon Diggs despite streaming Dwayne Allen, who all the experts said was the streamer du jour of the week, and then he wasn't the streamer du jour of the week. Get you out of here with one last question. Who is that one guy, that one guy, that guy that's in his third or fourth year in the league, he hasn't done anything yet, but you still qualify for truther status for? <laughs> oh, man, it's a hard one to, for me to just find some guy, but I guess I might be, I've come around on the Kristen Michael bandwagon again. I was off for a long time, but last year, what he did late in the season and now early this year, I'm, I'm, st- I'm still in on Kristen Michael, so... I, and I think with Rawls getting nicked up again and Michael just flat out producing him, it could be the time. The the awakening, as it's been referred oh, to on Twitter, could be ha- could be happening in week three. You can't continue to dismiss the production differential between Kristen Michael and Thomas Rawls. I mean, at some point, you can't dismiss it. I've been saying it behind this microphone for years that Kristen Michael's never been a good running back, that he was usurped on the depth chart by Cyrus Gray at Texas A&M. He wasn't productive for four years in college, then wasn't productive during his entire NFL career. And the idea that he would be productive this year was a fairy tale. But guess what else was a fairy tale? That Dennis Pitta would come back and be a top five tight end. True. That was a fairy tale. That Victor Cruz would come back from a torn patella, which we've never seen before. It's a resurrection. Hallelujah! He's back! So many miracles and fairy tales are coming true. Why not, Christy Michael? Why not? Just This is like a merry band in a fairy tale, and eventually they're going to find a princess in a tower. Magic happens all the time in fantasy. Crazy, crazy fairy tales. That's what makes it so fun and makes it so enjoyable for us to try and predict these fairy tales and things. But look, guys, sometimes we don't want to believe it. But when the truth is out there on, on game tape and in the box score, you just you got to embrace it. And, and Kristen Michael is here. He's a he's a thing. Just deal with it. So, Alex, how should Michael Fabiano respond to my criticism? Just deal with it.